morning. <clears throat> Hopefully you were able to grab a copy of the outline. I don't have a full-fledged manuscript for you, but it, there is a teaching outline, and if you'd like to fill it in, feel free to do that. We're finally getting to the portion of Revelation that I could not wait to get to, and it is finally beginning in Revelation 21. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to take them and open them to the book of Revelation chapter number 21, and we're going to begin by reading the first eight verses of Revelation chapter 21. The Apostle John writes these words, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God." And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers, and whoremongers, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake, which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Let's pray. Lord, we long, we yearn for that day when there is no more sin, when there's no more sadness, when there's no more sorrow, when there's no more pain, when there's no more death. And we thank you that you have assured us that that day will indeed come. That in the meantime, we as your servants should be faithful, should live in light of that coming day, and should proclaim the glorious message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to all creatures. Lord, we long for that day, but may we not long for it so much that we forget and neglect the things you do desire of us and even command of us to do. Thank you for this text. Thank you for these people. And thank you for this moment, all of which have been provided and ordained by your hand. We pray that everything that we study today and that everything in our worship thus far has been praiseworthy and has been magnifying you. For that is what we long to do, and that's why we have gathered. And we pray all of this now in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
Some of you have heard me say this before, but I actually enjoy some Hallmark movies. And the reason why I enjoy some of them is because they kind of give you this almost feel-good feeling, if, if you know what I mean. So I don't like all Hallmark movies because they are very um, cookie-cutter in the sense that the plots are all the same. But I do like the Christmas ones, and Christmas is my favorite season. Part of why that is is this, everybody has this sense of goodwill. There's this sense of joy, usually, and... Uh, when you watch a Hallmark movie, it's like everything seems to be perfect, and any of the not-perfect things in it, they're kind of like, okay, once they get it all figured out, they pretty much do have a perfect world. I also remember as a kid watching several Laurel and Hardy movies. I don't know if you've ever watched any old Laurel and Hardy movies, but there was one that they did called Utopia, and it's kind of a... a something we all long for. It's kind of a play, if you will, on what we want but what we can't have because if you know any Laurel and Hardy movies, you realize that it's all slapstick and there's nothing utopian about <laughs> the situations they place themselves in. But that concept of utopia is something we long for, isn't it? I mean, I don't know about you, but I can't wait till I don't have to worry about crime. When I don't have to worry about whether or not I need food to sustain my life, there are things that a utopian world is very attractive to me, to us, to our world. If you think about the world right now, there are many people who are trying to bring about that utopia. Um, in past history, what was World War II referred to as, or even World War I, both of them, really, I think you could say, they were the wars to end all wars. And why? Because they hoped that once we got it all out, we'd be able to not have any more wars. A sense of utopia. Or now, when everyone in our culture is trying to create um, a new culture, tear down the old institutions and raise up new ones where we can finally have a utopia. And while we can look at some of the very liberal and very um, dangerous, I think, ideas that are being propagated today by people who are trying to create their own version of utopia, I don't think we can deny them the fact that we all want a utopia. We want something where there's no more struggles. We yearn for something where it's just joy, there's no more sorrow. We yearn for something where it's just life everlasting and not having to go to a funeral. We long for something that will bring about peace, lasting peace, and there's no more wars and fightings. We long for something that is just something we don't have now. Something that we would call a utopia. And when you look at any storylines in any kind of movies or books or things like that, what is the one thing we want to happen? In any plot, there's always a conflict, but at some point, we always want there to be some kind of resolution. Because I think built within us, there is this yearning for something more than what we have now. I think built within us, God has given us the desire to see and to know the happy ending of the story of redemption. And I think it's also related to the fact that all of the sorrow, all of the pain, all of the hurt, death itself, wasn't originally supposed to happen. 
in God's intentions in creating everything. Of course, in God's sovereign plan, yes, it was. This happened all within God's sovereignty. But when God created the heavens and the earth, and when he went through the six days of creation and everything he looked at, behold, it was very good, it's not as though he was hoping, in some sense, that it would stay that way. Or that, or that, excuse me, that it would change. He was intending for it to stay that way. And when Adam and Eve were given the option to finally fall, of course they chose that because of the, the, the deceitfulness of Satan and the serpent. But this isn't the way it was intended to be. And whenever you go to a funeral, you sorrow and you cry. Why? Because you know this isn't the way it's supposed to be. When Jesus goes over to Lazarus' tomb, and as he's on the way, he's crying. Why is Jesus, the Son of God, crying when he knows what he's about to do is he's about to go raise Lazarus from the dead? He's crying because he knows this was not the way it was intended to be, and he sees his creatures hurting. And he has told them over and over again that he came to give them not death, but life. We were created to know and to yearn for life. Which is why we long for that utopia where there is no death, where there is no hurt, where there is no sorrow, where there is no tears. And the wonderful truth for us today is that God is in the process of bringing that about. God is bringing about the end of the story And the end of the story is glorious, it's wonderful, and it's described in our text today. So with that in mind, I want us to realize today in our text that we can rejoice. We can. The text is going to describe about about how there's going to be one day no more sorrow, no more crying, no more death, nor pain. It's going to describe that, but none of us can understand that yet. Because each and every one of us, us in this room at some point has shed tears. Each and every one of us in this room has seen or experienced the loss of somebody, death. Each of us has experienced in life sorrows and pain and hurt. But we can still rejoice because God has made you new in Christ. And guess what? He's not going to finish there. One day he's going to make all things new. And that is what we're talking about today. What is, going, is, what is God going to make new, though? What is going to change? This is where we are going to see four ways that the Lord displays to us in this text that will be new. Things that he will change. And the first one is this, that he's going to create a new realm. He's going to create for us a new realm. In verse 1, John says, I saw, and that is a a thing he said over and over again throughout this book. I saw this. I saw that. John is bearing record and testimony to the fact that everything he is saying and writing in this book is not something he made up. He says, I saw this with my eyes. And what does John get a glimpse of but the future reality we all are yearning for? He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. A new heaven and a new earth. When God opens the book of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, what does he say he made? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
It all comes from God himself. And John says, I see a new one, a new heaven and a new earth. Why is it new? Because the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. What does he mean by passed away? And this is where really the debate comes in because some people have suggested that this new heaven and this new earth is, is really completely brand new. That is to say that eventually there's going to come a point when God will, after the millennial kingdom and the millennial reign and the final battle that we all discussed in chapter 20, that God one day is going to destroy all of this. In fact, you could write this down, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 7, the apostle Peter says this, But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, beloved, do not be ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance." But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of the Lord, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Peter seems to be describing a cataclysmic event where the Lord takes this current realm that we are in, where where we have the current earth and the current solar system and the current heavens, And he seems to describe something in which we will see the destruction of it all. It will all be completely destroyed. And people who have looked at this verse in Revelation 21 and see that there's a new heaven and a new earth and that the first heaven and the the first earth have passed away, they turn to this passage in 2 Peter and they say, well, clearly this word pass away must mean that God completely destroys it. But there are others who don't say that. There are others who believe that this current world, this earth, this current earth and this current heavenly system that God has created is actually yearning not to be destroyed, but to be restored. For if you were to turn, you don't have to, but if you were to turn to um, Romans chapter 8 and verses 19 through 22, you would see that there is this description of the, the earth itself yearning for the coming of Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 22, excuse me, verse 19, saith, For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestations of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know, verse 22, we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, not just the earth and the world and the the system that God has created, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. People who see this verse about 
the earth groaning and travailing in pain together, and then seeing it being compared to us groaning and travailing. Our bodies are wasting away to nothing. (laughs) Eventually, this body that Rodney King has will get older and older and eventually will cease to function. It will die. It's groaning and travailing, but God isn't going to annihilate my body. God's going to redeem it. And one day, Paul says in Philippians 3, that Jesus Christ is going to come back and he's going to make our bodies new. He's not going to destroy our body. He's going to make it new. My, my old body will pass away, but it will be raised to a glorified new body. It's not like I received a different one. I received a restored new one. And so here, when Paul in Romans says that the earth is groaning just as we are groaning and we are waiting for the redemption of our body, they say when the new heaven and the new earth pass away, it's not talking about the fact that God will destroy the earth and that God will destroy the heavenly system, but rather that he's going to destroy the remnants of sin and that he will redeem and restore this current earth and this current heaven system, heavenly system to the new heaven and the new earth in the same way that he will give to us new bodies with which we will enjoy that new heaven and that new earth. Historically, the view that has been taken by people who are dispensationalists is that this current earth system will immediately be destroyed following the final battle and that Christ will create a new heaven and a new earth. And uh, frankly, that is what I was taught growing up. I'm sure that's probably what you were taught as well. But there, I think, is a lot of merit to the restoration idea because I think that is what God is doing. In fact, that's what he's about to say later on. We'll see it in just a moment. But he's going to say in verse 5, Behold, I make all things new. And in the King James, it sounds like it's, it's saying like he, he's, make, he's already made it. But if you have a newer translation, it probably says, Behold, I am making all things new. And that's a better translation. God is in the process of making all things new. What is he doing with us as Christians? He's growing us and making us new and newer and newer, more into the image of Christ. We as Christians are new creations, new creatures. And Christ is continually making us new. So it seems to me that there is great validity to this concept of the new heaven and the new earth being a restoration to the original state that God had created it. When you go back all the way to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, And you look at the earth and the heavens and all that were in it, what did God say about it? It was very good. One day, he's going to look back again and he will make a new heaven and a new earth. And whether he does annihilate this current one and create a new one or whether he restores this one, either way, the end will still be the same. It's going to be new. And there will be aspects about it that will be so different than anything we could have ever imagined. But he's not just going to make a new heaven and new earth. He describes in verse 2 that he also saw the holy city, Jerusalem, new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. If you read that verse in verse 2, I'm sure the first thought that comes to your mind is the fact that we as the church are the bride of Christ, right? that we're the bride of Christ. And Paul says in Ephesians that he wants us to be presented to him as a bride without spot or without wrinkle. He wants us to be a spotless bride. 
So this, in verse 2, is described in similar words. This new Jerusalem, a city, the holy city, John says, coming down from God. Is this an actual city or is this a representation of something? Frankly, I think it's both. I think it is an actual city. I think that this is the final culmination of what God promised to us as creatures, that one day he would dwell with us and we would be with him. And when it says here, the holy city, New Jerusalem, is coming down from God, God has prepared this place. It's almost like the tabernacle, which we'll see in just a second. It's almost like the tabernacle, which represented the presence of God, except for the fact that nobody else was allowed in the tabernacle, except the priests. The people had to stay outside. Not so with this new Jerusalem. With this new Jerusalem, all of the redeemed, all of God's people will be with him. I do think it's interesting that he's described this city as a bride prepared or adorned for her husband. And I do think that this may also be a representation not only of the heavenly abode, but of the heavenly people. That we, as the bride of Christ, will be joined together with our Lord, and as the apostle says, so shall we ever be with him. We will be in this new Jerusalem, this new place that God is making for himself. So this new realm will include a new heaven and new earth, and whether it's a recreation or whether it's a restoration, either way, it will be new, and there will be a complete transformation of the world as we know it, and there will be a new Jerusalem, a new city where we will dwell with God. And that leads us to the second new reality, and that is the new relationship that we're going to have with the Lord. When you get to verse 3, John says now not only that he saw, but in verse 3, I heard a great voice out of heaven. And notice these, what the voice is saying. Notice these next words saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. To any Jewish person, whenever they see the word tabernacle, they're immediately thinking about Moses and walking in the wilderness where they have to constantly set up and tear down and set up and tear down as they're wandering in the wilderness. They have to constantly set up the tabernacle. But what was the significance of the tabernacle? The significance of the tabernacle is that it was the representation of God being with his people. But he could not be with them as they were. Because even though God had set his love and affection on the children of Israel, he had redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. He had brought them out and was leading them to their new home, this promised land that was flowing with milk and honey. Nevertheless, even though he had said all of that, he could still not be in their presence to the fullest, greatest extent possible. And why is that? Because they weren't pure. They weren't holy. And so the tabernacle, as it was set up and as it was torn down, as it was set up, as it was torn down, was a constant reminder to the Jewish people that though they were God's special people and though God was dwelling with them to a degree, he was not with them completely. For only the priests were allowed into the tabernacle. The people weren't. There was still a veil between God and his people. Not everybody could see God. 
And when Israel finally gets to Mount Sinai and all of a sudden God is still veiling the manifestation of his glory, descends upon Mount Sinai and they see the clouds and the lightnings and the thundering. Do the people of Israel run with haste and joy into the presence of God? It says they, they stepped back trembling in fear. And they looked at Moses and they said, you, you go up there to that mountain. For if we go into that mountain, we will surely die. There was something about their creatureliness and there was something about their sinfulness that caused them to retract and to retreat from the presence of God. And God in mercy only permitted Moses to be in his presence. And when he gives Moses the Ten Commandments and he gives to him the law, Moses himself begins to reflect the glory of the one in whose presence he was. So that when he comes down from the mountain, what do the people say? Your face is bright. Cover it up. We can't see you. You, you must veil yourself. And so Moses literally covers his face. He puts a veil over his face because of the refracted glory of God. Rather than embracing that glory, rather than embracing the one whose glory that glow represented, the people said, hide it. Hide it. And through all of human history, that is what we have wanted. We have wanted to hide from God. We don't want to see God. Anytime we're exposed to the holiness of God, we, we instinctively seem to retreat because we know that we're not holy. We cannot tabernacle with God as we are. But one day, John says, I heard a voice that says, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. There is coming a day where the people of God will not need to fear of being in the presence of the Holy One. Because God says he will dwell with them. Before God could not. And Isaiah, when he sees the holiness of God, understands his sinfulness, and he says, I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. He understands that all of humanity is sinful, and so God cannot dwell with them to the greatest degree possible, for his holiness would consume us. But now, in this new heaven and this new earth, and in this new Jerusalem, we have a new relationship with God because he will be with men. He will dwell with them. And notice this, they will be his people. Did they cease to be his people before? Are we not God's people now? No, we are God's people now. But we're still flawed people. We still, as we are right now, cannot stand in the presence of God. Should God come down, we would still fear, but one day God is going to make everything new. When we finally realize the newness that we have in Christ where we will receive a new glorified body and we will have the eradication of that sin nature where we will no longer yearn for sin. We'll only yearn for the pure, unadulterated presence of the Holy One of Israel. We yearn for that day. We want that day. But it can't happen yet. So are we not God's people now? 
And I think what the Lord is suggesting here in verse 3 is that one day we'll finally be the true people of God, the people that God created originally for himself. When Adam and Eve were first created, they were pure, they were holy, which means they could stand in the presence of God. And when God is walking in the cool of the day, they could walk with him. But the minute they sinned, that was over. And while Adam is still described in the book of Luke as the son of God, nevertheless, there was something that was broken there. But one day it will be new and God will be with them and they will be his people. And notice this, God himself shall be with them and be their God. How many times could I emphasize this? That we will be with God. Isn't that what you yearn for? Isn't that what you long for? We want a utopia. We want some place that's perfect. But as Christians, more than anything else, we want to be with God. We want to be with Christ. That's what we yearn for. And God says, one day, you're going to have a new relationship with me, whereas right now, your relationship with me is that of faith. You cannot see me. In fact, Peter says, whom having not seen, you love. You still love Christ. You still love God, but you haven't seen him yet. One day, you will see him, and he will be with you, and he will be your God, and you will be his people in a perfect relationship, in a perfect realm. And we will be a pure people because that is the only type of people that can be in his presence. So there'll be a new realm a new relationship. And number three, there will be this new reality, something that's completely foreign to us right now. There's going to be no more curse. Verse four, when God tabernacles with men, these people who are purified and who now can enjoy the unadulterated presence of his holiness, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. I have seen more crying in the last six years of my life than I probably saw in all of my life. Because in ministry, you have people coming to you in tears. In ministry, you have people who pass away and you see the family members in tears. In ministry, you have people who turn on you or who say things about you that are hurtful. And it causes you to have tears. And you guys have the exact same thing. You've had people hurt you. You've had loved ones pass on. You have had sorrows in life. And you have cried tears. One day there won't be any. There won't be any tears. God will wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there's going to be no more death. Because what happened at the end of chapter 20... Death and hell are cast into the lake of fire. Verse 14 of chapter 20. That's the second death. That's the last death. There's no more death. There is now only in this new heaven and this new earth and this new Jerusalem with our new relationship with God, there's no tears and there's no death. There's no more pain. He says there's neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall be any more pain because the former things have passed away. There isn't going to be the world system as we know it now. There won't be sinners. There will be people who are redeemed, 
who have been restored, who can now enjoy the presence of God and know eternal life, but also I think what that whole verse could be summarized as is knowing eternal joy. Isn't that what you want? Don't you want to know and experience true, lasting joy? That will one day be a reality for us who love God. I can't wait till there is a time when there's no more crying. I'm not much of a crier, but when I do, it's awful. I hate it. You don't like crying either. You don't like sorrow. You don't like pain. You don't want to see this world continue the way it is now. Praise be to God, there's going to be a new reality where there is no more curse because all of these things are a result of the curse. Do you think when Adam and Eve were first created that somehow they experienced sorrow and pain and crying and tears? All they knew was eternal joy. All they knew was eternal fellowship until Satan decided to jump in and kind of confuse things to create doubt about who God is. Why will there be eternal joy? Is it just because we're just going to all of a sudden be changed from being pessimistic people to being extremely happy, optimistic people? It's going to change because we will know the joy of God, the joy of the Lord. We can know no greater joy than to know the Holy One. It will be nothing like we've experienced now. You guys have experienced joys in life. I don't mean to sound super pessimistic about everything now. It's not like we don't laugh. It's not like we don't smile. It's not like we don't have moments where we experience joy. But it's not true, lasting joy yet. Because we're still under the curse. We still feel the weight of our own sinfulness and our inclinations to sin. But one day, there's going to be a time where it's eternal joy, full, lasting joy. And now... We can experience that type of joy in Christ because Jesus says, I give to you my joy so that your joy might be full. And one day, that joy will be fully orbed in the reality that God will be with us and he'll wipe away tears and there won't be sorrow, there won't be pain, there won't be death because the former things have passed away. In verse 5, John says that he that sat upon the throne, this is the Lord, the Holy One, the one who says he will tabernacle with men. He says, behold, I make all things new. That is what I can't wait for. All things. Not a shred of this current sin-cursed world or system will be the same. God is making all things new. He is transforming. He is changing. And like I said, we as Christians, this is something we kind of understand to a degree than anybody else could. Because in Christ, what are we? We're a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We understand this because we're experiencing this transformation in Christ. We are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. We're being transformed into the same image of Jesus Christ. We are understanding this process of God making all things do, and one day God will for sure do it. And can I just say, this promise is sure because Jesus says to John, write for these words, the words that I am speaking to you are true and faithful. Have you ever had somebody make a promise to you that they couldn't keep? 
And some of you in this room probably, I'm that person. I made a promise to you and I wasn't able to keep it. But here's a promise that is guaranteed. A promise that God has says is true because he is the way, the truth, and the life because his word is truth and everything that God says is true and then he says it is faithful. Sometimes the hardest thing to remember when we're going through suffering is that God and his words are faithful. John writes these words. God commands John to write these words because we are tempted to not believe it. We want to somehow create our own utopia. So if we get the right people in political power, if we just get people to believe Christian virtues, if we get people to believe in conservative values, things like that, we'll be able to make all things new. But that's not what God said will happen. God will make all things new. He will do it. And he says, in case you don't believe me, John, write these words down and let everybody know that everything that I have just told you that will happen is true and faithful. Nothing that God has said ever goes back. He is true. He is faithful. And he's creating and making all things new. Why would he say all of this? Why would he say all of this? I think he says all of this because he's leading us now to this new, number four, this new reward. He's writing, John is writing to people who know this isn't the way it is right now. I'm speaking to people who are sitting in this pews who know this is not the way it is right now. And it's really hard to remember that there's going to be a time when there's no crying and no suffering when I am currently going through deep trials. When you are crying tears and your eyes are sore from the weeping, it's hard to remember these truths. And so God reminds us of a future new reward that we will enjoy. For we, of course, as Christians, enjoy the reward of Christ, enjoy the reward of the Holy Spirit of God and the joy of knowing that we are becoming more and more like him. But he promised us something else. Verses 6 through 8, he says to me, it is done. Wait, what? I thought you said it hasn't happened yet. doesn't feel like this is a new heaven and a new earth to me. It's because it isn't yet. Well, then why is God saying it's done? Notice what he says next. I'm the Alpha and Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. He says, this is as good as done. God does not live in a temporal setting like we do. We count all things and measure all things in terms of time. Some of us are counting the minutes until this service is done because we are in a time. But God says, I'm the alpha, the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and I am the omega, the last letter of the Greek alphabet. I am the beginning, I am the end. I don't exist in time. In the mind of God, it's almost as good as done. That's how sure it is. And he says, I will give unto him that is a thirst. 
the fountain of the water of life freely. This fountain of the water of life, I think, is a, a picture, a picture of this eternal life that we will enjoy one day in this new heaven and this new earth, where we will be able to finally, once again, eat from the tree of life, drink from the fountain of the water of life, all because of Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. We will know these realities, and God says, I will give this to you freely, without cost. This is the kindness, the benevolence of God. In verse 7, he says, those of you who are now living in this earth, those who overcometh, you don't need to overcome anything in the new heaven and the new earth. So who is he talking about right now? He's talking about the Christians who are laboring under this sin curse right this minute. He's talking about you and me because we are called to persevere as Christians, persevere in our faith in Christ, persevere in our faithfulness to the truth of God's word, persevere in our belief in the gospel and its power to transform hearts and lives, and persevere in lives of fruitful service to him. There are some people who won't. They will be overcome by Satan. I talked to the teenagers on Wednesday. We were talking about the parable of the sower, or better, probably the parable of the soils. And there's this one ground that's like the wayside. It's hard packed. And when the sower is casting the seed, what happens when it gets onto that hard ground? Well, it can't dig into the soil. And it's fair game for Satan and Jesus says that seed, which represents the word of God, is cast onto the hearts of those whose, whose hearts are like waysides. And Satan just comes in and plucks it out. And he says there are other grounds, like there's one where it's amongst rocks, and he casts the seeds into the rocks, and, and the seed starts to sprout up, but there's no depth to the soil. And so there's no root. It springs up for a moment, but then it withers and dies because there's no root for it. It's not going to last. And he says the word of God being cast and sown is almost like being cast into some hearts where the, the ground is good, but there's thorns, there's thistles. And so when it springs up, the cares of this life and the cares of our own inclinations to sin are choking out the words so that nothing happens. I think Jesus is describing for us some people who aren't overcomers people who look like they might be a Christian, people like us in this room who may look like we're Christians, but we demonstrate over time that we didn't persevere. This is how we can explain why people like, like a Joshua Harris who wrote the book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, could after 25 plus years of pastoral ministry suddenly tell his congregation, I am walking not only away from ministry, but I'm walking away from Christianity. How do we explain something like that? How could a guy pastor for 25 years and walk away from Christianity? Because he wasn't ever truly a believer. He wasn't an overcomer. He demonstrated through the trials and hardships of life that he really didn't believe the gospel. But God says to John, write these words, and to he who does overcome. 
to the one who is faithful, to the one who will persevere in his faith, guess what he gets? He will inherit all things. And I will be his God. And he will be my son. This is a guarantee. This is our reward. A lot of times we like to talk about in heaven the reward being I'm going to have so many crowns and I'm going to be casting the crowns at the feet of the Lord and perhaps there is some room for believing that but I think the Christian's greatest reward is not going to be some hunk of mellow. The Christian's greatest reward is going to be the presence and the new reality and the new relationship of his God. That is the greatest reward If you're looking forward to heaven only because there's streets of gold, if you're looking forward to heaven only because God is preparing many mansions or rooms, you're missing the point. The point of this new heaven and this new earth is not paved gold. The point of this new heaven and this new earth is not to get crowns, though we do look forward to those things. The point of the new heaven and the new earth is that we will finally be with God. That's what we want. That's what we yearn for. Is that what you want? Those who will not inherit all things, those who will not see God as their God, those who will not be the sons of God are described in verse 8. The fearful. The unbelieving. They refuse to believe and embrace the gospel. The abominable in their works. Murderers whoremongers, which is an old word basically of talking about sexually immoral people, sorcerers, witchcraft, idolaters, all liars. None of these people will be true in verse 7. They are not overcomers. He says, they will have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. But here's the wonderful thing. You can know Christ. You don't have to be characterized as the people of verse 8. You can be the person in verse 7. And it begins by acknowledging that you need Jesus Christ to save you from your sins because you can do nothing to earn the favor of God. Israel wandered for 40 years. Israel was given the law. Israel was given the Ten Commandments and they sought to be moral people. So much so that they had a group of people called Pharisees who were religiously trying to follow the law of God. And what does God think of all of those good things that they did? Jesus described them as you brood of vipers. You whitewashed tombs. You aren't overcomers. You aren't true children of God. You're people who think that you're good enough to be in the presence of God. And Jesus says, the only way you can be in the presence of God is if you embrace me. Jesus said, I am the way, not the law. I am the truth, not the keeping of good things and good morals. I am the way, the truth. And Jesus says, I am the life. Life is only found in Christ So if you are sitting here today having not embraced Christ, the sad reality for you is the end of those described in verse 8. 
that you will not enjoy the presence of God. You will not dwell with him. He will not dwell with you. He will not be your God. He will be your judge. But you have a chance to repent now. You have a chance to know him through Christ. It's the only way. Nothing good you can bring will inherit eternal life for you. The only way you will know true joy that is described in verse 5, the real presence of God that's described in verse 3, and the new realm that we'll be living in described in verses 1 and 2, the only way you'll know that is if you embrace Christ. For those of us who have, this is our future. This is what we long for. This is what I can't wait for. And I hope that that is true for you. God, we praise you and we thank you that you have given to us true and faithful words. Not words that are empty, not promises that are vain, but words that not only give us hope for the future, but words that can cause us to joy and rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Lord, I pray and beg you on behalf of those in this room who have not trusted Christ alone, who have not believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, that your spirit would impress upon their hearts and open their eyes to see their desperate need to embrace Christ. And Lord, I also pray for those of us who are your children now, who do experience sorrow and pain and tears and even death. Please give us hope. Please encourage our hearts and cause us to rejoice, knowing that you are making all things new to the glory of your name. Amen.